today on Point of the Spear. Some of the best articles we have are the ones that show that stories that we all love today don't have any basis in fact there's a lot of great stories about the american revolution that were first told halfway through the 19th century when all the participants were dead managing editor don haggist is here to talk about his publication the journal of the american revolution and we'll hear from him right after this break i'm robert child and this is point of the spear I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener-supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today, and thank you for your support. Welcome back. Today's guest is an independent researcher specializing in the demographics and material culture of the British Army during the American Revolution, and has published a number of articles in academic journals. He is managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution and author Don Haggist, joins us now. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And Merry Christmas to you, sir. We're getting close. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Happy holidays. Well, thank you both. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, when did you first become interested in the American Revolution? Um, well, I've been interested in military history ever since I was a little kid. You know, I, I grew up in a house full of books and read a lot of different kinds of things, but was really drawn to books that were about people at war and in particular firsthand accounts of people at war. And when I was quite young, it was also the bicentennial era. So there was a natural inclination to learn about that time period. Um, So I learned more about the American Revolution. I got involved in historical reenacting, which was also very appealing to somebody interested in experiences of people and that got me drawn to reading more firsthand accounts so the the thing i like most it's not just reading about the american revolution it's reading about the individual people and especially their own experiences as much as possible in their own words that i can find yeah yeah it really brings you so close to the action Uh, there's a couple journals that i've read of of some of the soldiers in Washington's army that crossed the Delaware and uh, how they described, you know, laying on the on the leaves in the cold, but just being thankful that they could put their feet, you know, near the fire. <laughs> yeah. But in the revolution, what, what aspect about it interested you most besides the firsthand accounts, the battles, the personalities, or, you know, the, the establishing the constitution? You know, that's a great question. It's the people and not so much the personalities, because when we say the personalities, we tend to think of the leaders and the big names. And I'm interested in the common soldiers. My own focus of my research is on the British common soldiers, mm. because um, 
when I got interested in this time period, wanted to learn more about it. You know, as, as a kid, I was fascinated with um, the uniforms and the equipment and the stuff. You know, I liked building the models of the tanks right. and ships and whatnot. We get into the American Revolution, then the, the army that had the big draw for me was the professional army, the Redcoats, because they had all the neat military stuff. They had the technology of the day and they had the training and the professionalism. But I wanted to learn about the people, not just the army, but who were those individual soldiers? And I found there was an amazing paucity of literature on the subject. And the one I got into looking at literature was available. There were a lot of things that didn't really make a lot of sense if you thought about it with a critical mind. Okay. For example, you'd find something that said, oh, the soldiers were fiercely loyal to their regiments and they would do all kinds of, you know, they would do anything to support their regiment and their flag. And then you find something else that says, oh, the punishments were horrible. You know, for the slightest infraction, a soldier could get beaten with an inch of his life. And I thought, those two things seem contradictory somehow. They do. Well, and it turns out that they are contradictory and neither statement is accurate in such an absolute sense and that there's a lot of specifics that are required when you're when you're studying something like this like yeah british military punishment was very harsh but only for the people who actually got punished which wasn't every single soldier for every single type of infraction and what have you and and so i've, I've researched and written about this extensively to try to put these things in more context and see who these people really were, where they came from, why would you want to join an army like this? What was your career like? What happened to soldiers after they left the army? All these sorts of things. How would you characterize then the common British soldier who was fighting against the Americans in the Roman Well, this the first thing I do is I avoid saying the common British soldier because okay. there wasn't always one and they weren't all the same. By any stretch. So there was quite a range of people in the British Army at this time. Um, but it, the generalities I reinforce frequently, um, most important thing to recognize is that during the time period we're focused on, the American Revolution, so 1775, 1783, for most of that time, the British Army was an all-volunteer force. So you read a lot of books that talk about, oh, men pressed into service and they were forced to fight and they were dragged off the fields of their farms and whatnot. And none of this is true at all. Mm. Um, when the war began, all of the soldiers in the army had enlisted during a time of peace and then a war started. So you read about, you know, why would somebody join the army to go to America and fight their colonists? Well, when the war started, soldiers were already in the army and it was an all-volunteer force it was not it was illegal for the british army to press men into service during times of peace oh, okay once the war began it remained illegal to press men to service until 1778 when france joined the war and it became a global conflict then there was a need for a lot more men in the army and for a two-year period from May of 1778 until May of 1780, there was a press act for the army. 
It accounted for about 10% of all the recruits raised for the army just during that two-year period, and then the law was revoked, and it became illegal to press men into the army again. So in terms of the soldiers who served in America during this eight-year-long war, the number of men pressed during that two-year period accounted for almost none of the soldiers who fought in America. And yet you find a lot of books that talk about, you know, it was an army of conscripts and what have you, right. and not true at all. Another important thing to acknowledge is that most of these soldiers were career soldiers. So when you joined the army during this time period, for the most part, you joined in the same way that today you would take a job. You didn't join for a two-year stint or a four-year hitch. You just enlisted. And you served until you were no longer fit for service. Um, most British soldiers joined the army in their early 20s, which is another point that people miss a lot. They tend to assume that they would be much younger. And a man is fit for service, fit for doing something like marching 20 miles in a day and sleeping outside, usually for 20, 25 years. So you see in the oh. British army this range oh. of men who were, again, for the most part, we're talking a statistical distribution here of men who are mostly somewhere between 25 and 40 years old in the British Army. You know, I don't like to just say the average age was about 32 years old because that makes it sound like all of them were that age. Right. You know, we use statistics really badly sometimes as historians, <laughs> but, but there were about maybe 20% of the men in an average British regiment regiment being about 500 men, you'd find about 20% of them being under the age of 25. So you find about 20% of them being over the age of 40. And then you find the other 60% of them being somewhere between the age of 25 and 40. And this is true for almost every single British regiment in America at almost any time during the war. You know, there are exceptions here and there. Right. But if you, if you aggregate it and say, well, who was the typical British soldier? You'd say, well, he's a guy who joins during times of peace for a career in the army, enlisted voluntarily for a career in the army. And if you pull the guy out of the ranks who happened to be walking by at any given time, odds are he's going to be somewhere between the ages of 25 and 40. He's liable to have five to 15 years of experience in the army when you encounter him. Um, he probably worked some kind of trade before he chose to join the army in his late teens or early 20s and what have you. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Coming up on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, on Point of the Spear, we've got a two-part narrative special, The Christmas Crossing. In the afternoon, the army goes into motion. The weather conditions deteriorate, and what begins as an irritating drizzle morphs into a full-blown nor'easter with howling winds and pelting snow. For men already ill-clothed, many shoeless, the march is nearly unbearable. As more and more troops reach the assembly area around McConkie's Ferry, confusion settles in as they are told to wait. Washington orders, no man quits his ranks upon the pain of instant death. A silence ensues as men are ordered not to speak. The only sounds are the howling wind and the profanity-laced barking of General Knox to keep the boats moving. I hope you'll join us for this very special two-part program. Bringing it up to today, what are your thoughts on the removal of the Thomas Jefferson statue in New York City Hall? This is a great question. And I think that 
all of the controversies about statues and removal of statues is an enormous tempest in a teapot. Um, statues are not how we remember history. Statues are how we celebrate history. You know, they're not, mm -hmm. so statues aren't our history. They're and a statement of how we choose to celebrate certain individuals and certain aspects of our history. If social issues are going on that make us, that make some people want to change these things about how we celebrate certain aspects of history, we should really be looking at the underlying issues of why people feel that way, not getting all in a huff about, oh my God, they want to change our statue. You know, it's like saying they want to change the color of the paint on something, they want to change the window dress. Who cares? Right. People want to remove the statue of Jefferson, they remove the statue of Jefferson. Um, you know, remove the statues of civil war leaders. My my own preference would be to say, I'll use a Confederate leader as a different example here. There's no need for some of these statues to be, say, in the town square downtown. But build a civil war memorial park and have an equal number of statues to leaders on both sides and put them in a put them in a context of remembering the military history and teaching the military history. Mm -hmm. well, that's fine. Just, but you don't need statues of some of these people in, you know, so Thomas Jefferson, you don't want him in front of civil city hall. Don't put him in front of city hall. Nobody's talking about burning down Monticello and erasing history. Right. They're just talking about taking away one piece of how we celebrate history. So I see it as a non-issue altogether. And I see it as putting symbols in front of what are the real issues you know getting all upset about the statue instead of saying let's really take deeper looks at the underlying issues of systemic racism that we still deal with in this country right. and focus on those issues and forget about the stupid statues you know you can always build another statue some other day if you want to getting to uh, the journal and speaking about controversy have there been articles over the years that have caused a stir or a great debate online on your publication? There have been articles over the course of the last week that have caused a stir and great debate <laughs> online. <laughs> Funny you should ask that. Um, I, I could have spent a little more time checking over the years to try to figure out the biggest ones. But I mean, just this last week, on the anniversary of the surrender, British surrender at Yorktown, we published an article by by a, a well-known historian that dealt with what became of slaves, enslaved people who had fled enslavement to join the British army or to join the British cause during the American Revolution. After the British surrendered at Yorktown, George Washington issued an order saying, yeah, we got to round up all these people and return them to their masters. Right. And uh, this article caused a lot of controversy. I think part of the reason it did was because um, in the journal, we ask our authors in general to take a very neutral tone about things, to say, here's what happened. It's not up to me to state an opinion on it. I just want to show you, here's the facts. And we try to get away from any mythology or whatever. In this case, we, we let the author get fairly passionate about some opinions on this <laughs> and 
you know, as a publication, we experiment from time to time. And so people objected, I think, not to the fact that we presented the material, but to how it was presented as a great injustice to the enslaved people at the time. It was, of course, an injustice, but that's using our modern hindsight. Right. Washington, at the time he gave this order, was doing nothing more than conforming to the laws that were in place at the time. As a military commander, he tried to, you know, to the extent that one can, pursue the war in a legalistic way. And following the laws of his new nation, he said, well, the law says that these people are the property of these other people, and so we have to return them to them, and that's what I'm going to do. So it wasn't Washington giving his opinion on anything. It was Washington following the laws of the day. And we can argue till the cows come home about how much that was a good or bad thing, but that's what he did. And yeah, that elicited a lot of controversy. Some people said, oh, it's a divisive thing at a time when we don't need that. And other people said, here, here, the enslaved people need more acknowledgement than they get. And it was a great injustice and what have you. I agree. I read the article and I know the historian. Um, mm -hmm. We interviewed him here at Point of the Spear. I know him very well. And now, unfortunately, the articles we published that have gotten the most comments are things like, what were your favorite top 10 movies about the American Revolution? And no, those get lots and lots and lots and lots of comments. Yeah. You know? yep. People are still, you know, an article that was published six, seven years ago and that subject still gets comments because that's kind of thing more people are aware of. It's good to see their interest. In what yeah, I suppose so. How has the publication grown over the years and how did it start? The publication started in 2013 was its first full year of publication. And it was the vision of an entrepreneurial fellow named Todd Anderlich, who is not a Revolutionary War historian, but at the time was a collector of 18th century newspapers. And he became very fascinated with newspapers from this time period and the importance of understanding the history as it was experienced by the people who experienced it. And when you read newspapers, that's a great way. You know, reading newspapers from the time period is a wonderful way to see the information that people were consuming at the time, to get rid of the time compression that tends to happen as a historian. You know, we can look at the events yeah. of an entire year all at once. And then we look at the events that are going on today around us and it seems so different. Well, time hasn't sped up or slowed down over the centuries. It's just that we have the benefit of hindsight knowing how things turned out. But so you read newspapers of the period and you can get a sense of when people learned what kind of information. I would think that Probably some reports from the time may not be accurate today, but they were what they were perceived of at the time. And that's a point well taken, too. Just because it was recorded at the time also doesn't automatically make it true. Right. So we have to be careful there, too. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, some of the best articles we have are the ones that show that stories that we all love today don't have any basis. And in fact there's a lot of great stories about the american revolution that were first told halfway through the 19th century when all the participants were dead and then yep. somebody comes up and says well my grandfather was the one who did such and such a thing it's like well if you actually look at the historical record at the time there's 
not only nothing to support that, but often things to totally contradict that. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because at the end of this week, we have a upcoming two-part special, uh, The Christmas Crossing, releasing on December 24th and 25th. My question is, do you know of any aspects of Washington's Crossing that are virtually unknown today, or some that have been accepted as fact that aren't true? Well, there's quite a number of things that aren't known about it. There's straightforward things like the mechanics of how the crossing actually happened. You know, we know that Glover's marble headers ferried the troops across, but we don't have a clear understanding of like, well, how many boats were there? How many round trips did that take? How many men were in each boat? Um, we know some number of horses went along to tow artillery. How many horses? Things like that. So there's a lot of detail about how this was accomplished that, we, that nobody gave any detailed record of. That's unfortunate. Mm. Um, something that is widely overlooked about the whole operation is there were supposed to be three separate crossings of the Delaware in three places. Yes. Um, two others led by two other commanders and Washington was the only one who chose not to turn back because the weather was terrible. And he led his crossing, the other two parts of the operation got canceled because of the bad weather. I, I don't know that Washington even knew this at the time, but he just went ahead and made his attack as planned and it was wildly successful. Um, I think there's a lot of folklore about the idea that the German garrison were all drunk from over celebrating on Christmas Eve. That's not borne out by the historical record. They were taken by surprise for sure, but they fought quite as quite well for a garrison that is suddenly attacked in the middle of the night, but they 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 weren't inept by any means in their defense. Right. Um, a number of the Hessian troops did escape, in fact. Um, there's also a story about a spy, I'm not remembering the name off the top of my head, but a, a local citizen who provided critical intelligence on the New Jersey side. And this story is not supported by any primary source evidence oh, okay. at all. I, I apologize for, I just do not remember the name of the person. We have an article in the journal about this story. Are you thinking about the, the loyalists who tried to warn Rawl? That I no, that's not the one. There was a different person who supposedly served as a guide and provided critical intelligence and what have you. Um, and again, it was a real person, but the idea that they did some of the things that they did isn't supported by any evidence. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, there's an the story. there's another story that's close to me because I I did a book once that deals with people who served in the American Revolution and then lived long enough to have their photograph taken. Oh. Although the book didn't deal with this person, I encountered a fellow named Conrad Hare, who was supposedly the only soldier who crossed the Delaware with Washington to have his photograph taken. And you see this picture everywhere on the internet. And it turns out that there's no actual evidence that Conrad Hare was on the crossing of the Delaware. In fact, if you look at his own service record, he was discharged from the army on about December 15th when he was up serving on the Hudson River in the Hudson Highlands. Oh. And as far as he himself wrote at the time, he was discharged and went home. 
but this story of him being the man who crossed the Delaware cropped up in the 1850s and it has been out there ever since. Again, we have an article in the journal, the American Revolution about this, looking at, you know, what's the real evidence about where this guy was and how he served and uh, it's unsupported, but you'll see it all over that he was the guy. <laughs> Accepted as fact. Accepted as fact, yeah. The publication is the Journal of the American Revolution, and you can find it online at allthingsliberty.com. Don, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Always glad to do it. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Coming up on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, on Point of the Spear, we've got a two-part narrative special, The Christmas Crossing. In the afternoon, the army goes into motion. The weather conditions deteriorate. And what begins as an irritating drizzle morphs into a full-blown nor'easter with howling winds and pelting snow. For men already ill-clothed, many shoeless, the march is nearly unbearable. As more and more troops reach the assembly area around McConkie's Ferry, confusion settles in as they are told to wait. Washington orders, No man quits his ranks upon the pain of instant death. A silence ensues as men are ordered not to speak. The only sounds are the howling wind and the profanity-laced barking of General Knox to keep the boats moving. I hope you'll join us for this very special two-part program. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.